Hi, I'm Robert Jeffress, and I'm glad to serve as your Bible teacher every day on this great radio station on today's edition of Pathway to Victory. Every pastor remembers his first sermon. I remember mine. You know, I thought of that this week as I read about another first sermon. It's found in Acts chapter two. It's the first sermon that the apostle Peter ever preached. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter two as we look at the greatest sermon ever preached. Welcome to Pathway to Victory with author and pastor, Dr. Robert Jeffers. You know, the world has really seen a lot of great preachers throughout the centuries. Billy Graham, Charles Spurgeon, Jonathan Edwards, and that's just to name a few. But only one preacher holds the honor of delivering the greatest sermon of all time. Today on Pathway to Victory, Dr. Robert Jeffress explains what made the Apostle Peter's message so remarkable. Now, here's our Bible teacher to introduce today's message. Dr. Jeffress? Thanks, David, and welcome again to Pathway to Victory. In my lifetime, I have never witnessed the level of vitriol being leveled against Christians today. Wouldn't you agree? Once we declare ourselves to be Christ followers, enemies seem to draw back their bows to shoot arrows through our character. Well, for this reason and more, I'm giving the entire month of June to a brand new teaching series called Unstoppable Power. It's based on Acts chapters 1 through 12. In this study, we'll gain inspiration from first century Christians who endured far more persecution than you and me. To coincide with this study, I've written a book for you as well. It's also called Unstoppable Power. And when you give to the matching challenge that's active right now, I'll be pleased to send you a copy. Plus, whatever amount you choose to give is automatically matched and doubled in size because of the Unstoppable Power Matching Challenge. That means your generous gift of, say, $500 becomes $1,000. A $1,000 gift would become $2,000, and on it goes. When you give today, you're empowering us to provide this daily program and the many other ministries of Pathway to Victory. In this way, your gifts to the Matching Challenge allow us to help you and your family remain strong in your faith, no matter what the culture throws at you. Well, it's time to get started in our study called Unstoppable Power. For this next portion, let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 14. I titled today's message, The Greatest Sermon Ever Preached. Every pastor remembers his first sermon. I remember mine. I was 15 years old, a sophomore in high school, and I preached my first sermon here at this church. Not in here, obviously. Not in the historic sanctuary on Sunday morning. Instead, it was a Sunday afternoon at 4 p.m. in what we used to call the Embry Hall, a chapel that no longer exists here. And that's where we hosted every week our Good Shepherd ministry. It was a ministry to underprivileged children. They would bust the children in every week. And the leader of that ministry, James Newman, invited me to preach at the Good Shepherd Chapel. He knew I had just surrendered to the ministry, and I don't know if he thought this would be an encouragement to me or a dose of reality, but he invited me to come preach to those uh, 
kids, and my sermon topic was on 1 Kings 18, about Elijah's contest on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal and praying for God to show himself and how the fire of God came from heaven and consumed the sacrifice. I actually only remember two things about that afternoon. One is, while I was stumbling through 1 Kings 18, Brother Newman was walking up and down the aisles of the chapel with a baseball bat in his hand, <laughs> slapping the palm of his hand as hard as he could, trying to put the fear of God in those kids who couldn't have cared less about 1 Kings 18. The only other thing I remember that day was, unlike Mount Carmel, the fire of God did not fall on Embry Hall that afternoon. We were all relieved when it was over. You know, I thought of that this week as I read about another first sermon. It's found in Acts chapter 2. It's the first sermon that the Apostle Peter ever preached. In fact, it's the first sermon that was ever preached in the newly birthed church. And it had far different results than mine. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 2. Uh, remember, Acts 2 is the story of the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost. And we said last time that a supernatural church, one that turns the world upside down for Jesus, is one that is spirit-empowered, that is Christ-centered, and is mission-focused. Last time, we looked at the empowerment, the Holy Spirit empowerment of the early church. It happened on the day of Pentecost. And that leads to the second characteristic of a supernatural church. A supernatural church is Christ-centered. Look at verse 14. And Peter, taking his stand with the 11, raised his voice and declared to them. Many of us have stood there on those southern steps going up to the temple area where Peter is thought to have stood and preached. First, he begins in his prelude by explaining what they were witnessing there, this gift of tongues. He said, men of Judea, let it be known to you. These men are not drunk, as you supposed, for it's only the third hour of the day. They thought these 120 were drunk because although they were hearing the gospel in their own language, they didn't understand all the other languages. They thought it was a drunken stupor they were in. And Peter said, no, it's only the nine o'clock in the morning. All of this is a fulfillment of what the Old Testament prophesied. And then verse 17, he quotes from Joel 2, uh, in which God prophesied that one day God's Spirit would be poured out on all men. And uh, Pentecost was a partial fulfillment of that. Like many prophecies, there's a near and an ultimate fulfillment. But all of that is a prelude about the gift of tongues to the real focus of Peter's sermon. You know, every sermon to be effective should have one message that could be summarized in a single sentence. We call it the main idea, the central idea of a sermon. And here the central idea is very clear. Peter is going to declare that Jesus Christ is the Messiah as evidenced by his life, his death, and his resurrection from the dead. The first three-point sermon there. His life, his death, and his resurrection from the dead. Let's look at it. First of all, he says, consider Jesus' life. Verse 22, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. 
Jesus Christ has been attested to you. That Greek word, apodeknomai, literally means to show forth the quality of something. How do you attest to judge Jesus Christ? Peter says, first of all, consider his miracles, what he did while he was alive. Not only that, consider his death. Verse 23, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and you put him to death. Now, you know, today we say things like, we all nailed Jesus to the cross, our sins nailed him to the cross. And that's certainly true to a certain extent, but Peter wasn't speaking figuratively. He was speaking literally. He was saying to this group assembled before him, you are the ones responsible. You nailed him to the cross. And in fact, they had. Some of those listening were probably Roman centurions who were keeping peace in the temple area. 50 days earlier, they had participated in the crucifixion. He was talking to the Jews who 50 days earlier, when Pilate said, what shall I do with Jesus? They had all yelled together in unison, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And yet here is Peter standing up saying to that same crowd of people, you godless people, you're the ones who nailed him to the cross. Well, they had the power right then to nail Peter to the cross if they had wanted to. You have to ask yourself, what gave Peter the courage to do this? Especially when you consider just seven weeks earlier at the Passover, after Jesus was crucified, he stood in Caiaphas's courtyard, remember? And that little servant girl said, wait a minute, I recognize you. Aren't you one of those followers of Jesus? Remember how he replied? Jesus who? <laughs> Not me, you're mistaken. How do you explain the transformation from that cowardly disciple to the courageous defender of the faith he was seven weeks later? The answer is, he had seen the resurrected Jesus. And that changed his life forever. He said, you godless men, you nailed him to the cross. But then he says in verse 23, but it was all according to the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God. Look, Jesus' death wasn't accidental. It wasn't a case of some bad men getting hold of a good man and crucifying him. This was all part of God's plan. That word predetermined means appointed or designated. It was according to the foreknowledge of God. And here we see the mystery of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Does God will for people to do evil? No. Does God make people do evil? No. But God can take the evil that people do, evil, by the way, that they will suffer for. God can take people's evil acts and use them, work them together for good. I mean, Jesus said clearly in Luke 22, for indeed the Son of Man is going to go to the cross as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Judas was acting in accordance with a prophecy, but he's still responsible for his own actions. God can take evil and use it for good. That's what he did with Jesus. And by the way, he can do that in your life too. The worst things that people have done to you, the unjust, evil things that happen to you, don't take God by surprise. Does he will those things? No, but he uses those things to accomplish his purpose in your life and in the world. That's what Peter was saying. This all happened according to the predetermined plan of God. But the largest neon arrow from heaven pointing to Jesus as the Messiah is not his life, it's not even his death. It's his resurrection from the dead. 
Look at verse 24. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Then he quotes from a Psalm, Psalm 16, a thousand years before the time of Christ that prophesied of Christ's resurrection. He quotes the Psalm that says, I saw the Lord always in my presence for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope. David is talking about how he has hope. Why? Verse 27, because you, God, will not abandon my soul to Hades. You're not going to leave me in the grave. In the Old Testament, Hades usually means just the grave. David said, I find hope through my life because I know in my death, you are not going to abandon me to Hades, nor are you going to allow your holy one to undergo decay? Your holy one, who is that? That's the Messiah. David was looking forward a thousand years to the Messiah, his descendant, who would sit on his throne forever and ever. And he said, God, you're not going to allow your holy one, the Messiah, to even undergo decay in the grave. You say, Pastor, aren't you reading a lot into that? How can you get all that out of that psalm written a thousand years beforehand? Isn't that reading a lot into it? Peter didn't think so. Look at his explanation. Verse 29, brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. In other words, David obviously wasn't just talking about himself because we know where his grave is and his body is still rotting inside that grave. One day he'll be resurrected, but not yet. And so, verse 30, because David was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on the throne, David looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. He wasn't in that tomb long enough to begin to rot. God raised him up again, to which we are all witnesses. Why is it that Peter centers on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. First of all, Christ's resurrection was the signal proof that he was the Messiah. He has risen from the dead just as he said he would be. And notice how Peter concludes the sermon, verse 36. Therefore, let all of the house of Israel know for certain that God is making both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified. And what was the response to that message? The results, look at verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? This message deserves a response, but what are we supposed to do? And Peter responds by giving the first evangelistic message and invitation in history. He says in verse 38, here's what you do. Repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized. What does that mean to repent? Metadoneo, the Greek word, to have a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. These Jews who had been listening needed to change their mind about who Jesus was. He wasn't just some rabbi. He was the Messiah. 
They could no longer ignore him. They needed to accept him to put their faith and trust in him for the forgiveness of sins. That was the whole Christian message. What must I do for the forgiveness of my sins? It was to repent, believe, trust in Jesus. And then he says, and let each of you be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Now, some people get hung up on that. They say, no, wait a minute. Is he saying baptism is what saves us, washes away our sin? Of course not. There's nothing in that water that is holy, comes out of the tap, just like the water we use. There's nothing holy in that water that washes away your sin. It is a picture of what God has done for you when you trust in Christ. Well, then why does it say for? For. That Greek preposition for, ice, E-I-S, can mean one of two things. It can mean in order to, for the purpose of, in order to. Or it can mean because of. Let me illustrate the two different meanings. I can say a soldier was given a gun for shooting. Why did he receive the gun? For the purpose of shooting, in order to shoot. But I could also say a soldier was given a medal for bravery. Was he given the medal to make him brave? No, he was given a medal because of his bravery. And that's how Peter is doing it. Repent and be baptized as a result of, because of the forgiveness of sins. Let me give you a second way to look at that. In the Bible, sometimes baptism is shorthand for the whole salvation process of repentance, faith in Christ, that ultimately concludes with baptism. For example, imagine a father who's very proud of his daughter for graduating from medical school. And a couple of days after the graduation ceremony, he says to a friend, I'm so proud of my daughter. Her graduation opens up a whole new world of possibilities. When he talks about his daughter's graduation from medical school, is he just focusing in on when she walked across the stage and received the diploma, that actual ceremony? No, he's talking about the years of school she went through, the tests that she took, uh, the training she received, all that culminated on that receiving of the diploma. It's a whole scope of things he's looking at. It's the same when we talk about baptism. That's the last step that signifies the whole salvation process. When Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Is the way you make a disciple go around and just start dunking people? No. Baptism is just shorthand for saving, for introducing them to faith in Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying here. But don't underestimate the importance of baptism. It is a command. It's a command for every Christian. Let every Christian be baptized because of the forgiveness of his sin. That is scriptural baptism. You believe first, and then you're baptized. Secondly, notice the mode of baptism here. It is by immersion. We'll see when we get to Acts 8, and Peter, um, or Philip, uh, baptizes the Ethiopian eunuch. He takes him and puts him down in the water and brings him up out of the water. Jesus went into the water and came up out of the water. That's what the word baptize means, baptizo. It means to immerse. 
Why is that important? Because that's the picture you're painting. You've died to your own way of life. You've been placed in the grave and you've been raised to a new way of living. Notice what happened here. This is the pattern we see here in verse 41. So then, those who received Peter's word were baptized and that day there were added 3,000 souls. Church had started with 120 that morning. Now, there were 3,000 more who had believed and were baptized. By the way, what were they added to? They were added to the membership roles. Later on, verse 47, the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Don't let anybody tell you membership is not biblical. Where is their membership in the church? Here it is, right here in the Bible. We said that a supernatural church is spirit-empowered, it is Christ-centered, just like Peter's message, and finally, it is mission-centered. Spirit-empowered, Christ-focused, and mission-centered. They went out from this point on into the whole world to share the gospel, making not just converts, baptizing them, but disciples, teaching them to observe all things that Christ had commanded them. And notice how they grew, not just in number, but in spiritual maturity as well. In Acts 2.42, I wish I had the time, but I don't. But look at this. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Notice the four priorities of the early church. They continued to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, the dosco, the doctrine of the apostles. They didn't have a New Testament. They listened to the instruction of the apostles. Today, that's deposited in this book. That's why First Baptist Dallas is a church built on the Bible. They taught the word of God. Secondly, they gave themselves to fellowship. That's not just coffee and donuts. It's they became a part of one another, part of one another's lives, koinonia, to the point that if anybody had a material need, others would step in and take care of those needs. To the breaking of bread, that's a reference to the Eucharist, the Lord's table that they observed as a part of their Sunday evening meal. They called it the agape meal as a church. And finally, they devoted themselves to prayer. As we'll see in the weeks ahead, prayer was the power line that connected the early church to the incomparable power of God. That was the focus of the early church. Now, what was the result of all of that? Look at verse 46. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Does that sound like the kind of church you'd like to be a part of? We said that a supernatural church is spirit-empowered, Christ-centered, and mission-focused. That's the prescription for a supernatural life and a supernatural church. I believe the landscape of our country and even our world can be totally transformed when Christians become empowered by the Holy Spirit. In fact, I've written a book called Unstoppable Power to show you how. But before I share those details, let me give you some encouraging news. Did you know that Pathway to Victory is heard and seen by people 
all around the world. You often hear me say around the world, but that's no exaggeration. We have a growing global audience because of your generosity. For example, not long ago, I heard from a man named Baruch who lives in Israel. Baruch said, Growing up a religious Jew, I would never listen to, talk about, or have anything to do with Jesus. It was forbidden, but that always made me even more curious as to why. Finally, I found the answers I was looking for while watching Pathway to Victory. Baruch went on to tell me about his new belief in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. This is the impact you're having when you give generously to support the ministry of Pathway to Victory. I couldn't accomplish these things on my own. And right now, when you give a generous gift toward the Unstoppable Power Matching Challenge, your gift has twice the impact. Every dollar that's given for the duration of this matching challenge is multiplied by two. Now, to say thanks for your gift today, I'm going to send you my brand new book called Unstoppable Power. Here's David with all the details. Thanks, Dr. Jeffress. When you give a generous gift to support the ministry of Pathway to Victory, you're invited to request a copy of the brand new book by Dr. Robert Jeffress. It's called Unstoppable Power. Call us toll-free at 866-999-2965 or visit ptv.org. Now, when your gift is $75 or more, we'll also send you the complete collection of audio and video discs for the Unstoppable Power teaching series. You'll get that along with a helpful study guide. And don't forget, because of our Unstoppable Power Matching Challenge, your gift to Pathway to Victory will be matched and therefore doubled in impact. So be sure to get in touch with us today. One more time, call 866-999-2965 or online, simply go to ptv.org. You could also send your donation by mail. Write to P.O. Box 223-609, Dallas, Texas, 75222. Again, that's P.O. Box 223-609, Dallas, Texas, 75222. I'm David J. Mullins. Despite remarkable advances in medical science, illness and injury remain constant threats to modern life. So does God still perform medical miracles? Hear a message called Purpose Driven Healing. That's Wednesday on Pathway to Victory. Pathway to Victory with Dr. Robert Jeffress comes from the pulpit of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas.